Hi, horse people. This is Carolyn, and we have such a fun show for you today. I'm joined by a four foot ten athlete that was named in 2004 by USA Today as one of the top 10 toughest athletes. And she happens to be in the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame. You guessed it, jockey Julie Crone. Stay tuned to learn Julie's dynamic take on horsemanship. This is Racehorses Etc., the podcast celebrating horsemanship. I'm Carolyn Conley. I've covered horse racing on TV for over a decade, exercised some of the best horses in the world, and represented top jockeys. Here, I speak to icons and everyday racing folks to deepen our understanding of horsemanship. Julie Crone, joining us on the show. Julie, I'm so happy you're here. Oh, it's so nice to be here. So good to chat with you and sit here and uh, share some old stories and reminisce and appreciate the racing that we have in our past. When I think of horsemen in business, I think of you from the beginning. When I first watched you ride, it was clear that you had a special way with horses. And then you made a habit out of beating the boys, first woman to win a Breeders' Cup race, first women to win a Belmont Stakes. But in a tough game like thoroughbred racing, what balance did you have to find between toughness and gentleness riding in the best races in America? Well, first of all, I think that's kind of like a two-part thing because I think horsemanship has come really far. Like horsemanship has come a long way because like I remember even when I was like a jockey, you know, it was kind of like see how strong you can be and like when you, and when you use your whip as a jockey, you have to make sure and do it with strength and speed, you know, so that they don't think you're weak and that you can't like make a horse win kind of like and even that small journey from when I started as an apprentice to now where even the conversations come up where they're like, oh, um, let's not use whips at all. <laughs> and I think that's kind of a funny thing. So in the in the beginning when I started riding, there was only one way to be. You know, there was only the toughness and, you know, showing that horse who's boss kind of, you know, and it was just kind of a once in a while on the side kind of an opportunity where someone would say, Hey, you know, this horse is like kind of, uh, scared all the time and stuff. Can, can maybe a girl can get it to run? You know, there was this odd, odd horse out that, you know, a girl jockey could always get because we were supposedly like scrawny and, and weak and possibly get along with the horse that way. But as my career kept going on and on, you know, I would get, those would be my first opportunities and then the other ones would be the horses that were slow. And then the other ones would be, uh, you know, and then finally, um, I, um, it was kind of frustrating. I'll never forget it. I was at Garden State Park and Chris Antley was the leading jockey. And I remember Benny Perkins had a horse called Wintertime Sport. And he was this big, he was this big, like gorgeous sprinter with thick neck and like, and he was a stallion, you know, and I remember their, their, their pitch to not get me to ride the horse, you know, the other jockey's agent was that the horse was like too big and strong for me and stuff. And Benny Perkins senior, it was one of the first times anybody ever stood, stood up for me. And he was like, I want to tell you two things. He said, one, Julie can be as tough as anybody. Like, you know what I mean? And the other thing is this horse don't need somebody that's tough on him. He needs somebody that's gentle and has good hands and timing and stuff. Cause he's a very sensitive stallion, even though he's you know, big and strong and the sprinter and all wound up. And, and, um, it was really cool to be 
you know, to have all those different labels and to evolve into my horsemanship. And that being said, I think, Carolyn, that horsemanship has changed a lot. Um, you know, the there's a lot of attention being brought to uh, a more horse, horse-oriented communication with the horse, you know, kind of, you know, the Pirelli or, you know, Monty Roberts kind of started it with his round pen thing. And then I think Pat Pirelli is, and guys like Pat Pirelli and Buck Brenneman, uh, they've taken things to like a new, a different level where people even in the racehorse industry, uh, we all know that Bobby Frankel had uh, Pat Pirelli helping with a couple horses and do things. So that being said, Carolyn, there's a, always a mixture when you're with horses. I don't think one thing of toughness or one thing of uh, finesse, you know, they all go together with horses. And so developing myself along the way, it took a while and I think I'm still doing it. You know, I had my times when I was tough and assertive and then I learned a little bit like, oh, you know, like some other horses like you to be gentle and kind with them. And uh, that's funny when we started, when you came on and I saw you, I got a flashback of you galloping at Monmouth Park and Oh my gosh, and to watch you ride is a great thing. And but I will tell you, I think you're so fun to listen to and your perception of racing is so intense because of your you have a really intense, beautiful relationship with the horses too. And I think it makes you appreciate uh the good racehorses and you know, when you watch jockeys and trainers and stuff, like you know what you're looking at. So But yeah, so that was my short version of my horsemanship. I think there was always you know, there was always a balance and I'm still developing my horsemanship today. You know, that's really interesting that you say that because when you go back and you look at the pictures of you as a little kid or maybe the early days of you riding, you were so tough. I mean, you and you hear the other jockeys talk about it. You used to beat them up, I think. It was not a, you were no pushover. We had such a hilarious time in the jockey's room. And the time I beat Jake Need up, it was the craziest thing ever. I, I had been... It was like, in Tony's recollection of it, it was the, he's funnier than mine. Like, cause he's just a, what a pip, what a great thing for racing he is, you know, to be around all this time and still riding and talk about great horsemanship. Uh, but he was there and I had just been taking some karate classes and Jake was like choking me. He was like, don't you ever shut me off again. And I was like, hi, yeah, flah, flah. I was like, <laughs> like, you know, like I strike my hands on to break my neck free and I like kick him and he's, you know what? And. Oh my God, but that was the funniest thing ever. But yeah, it had to be tough sometimes, that's for sure. I look back at some of the highlights in your career, and of course, the 1993 Belmont Stakes comes up. And what I remember is flashing back to watching that race live and seeing you in post parade and how absolutely gigantic your horse was. He's so big. Tell us about <laughs> Colonial Affair. He was, what a fun horse he was. This is funny because Randy Schuhoffer loves the story because when Colonial Affair came to the barn, I was kind of like, riding everything in the barn and colonial affair was kind of like he wasn't he wasn't my cup of tea like at the time and it was so fun to to think at this point I was so arrogant in the barn that I was kind of like oh can that two-year-old that's all like gangly and like he used to buck and rear up and then he'd fall down afterward like he'd fall like he'd stumble and I'd be like oh he's horrible to ride I'd be like So, you know, and there's other horses in the barn that were kind of like along, you know, getting ready to race next week. And it's Saratoga. And I was like, you know, so excited to get them all ready. And uh, my mind wasn't thinking like, oh, this is going to be a really nice three-year-old next year and stuff like, because he was so backward and it was funny. And Randy actually was like, go get on that horse right now. He's like, (laughs) he had to make me go get on him. Then I started appreciating all his 
endearing qualities in the things that he had. Like, you know, he was funny. He was so funny. He would do like a full, and when he was grazing in the yard at Saratoga, you'd have to spread his front legs way far apart. And that in itself, to be on a horse with their legs spread way far apart is really an awkward feeling. And I used to have my hand in the yoke, and I'd be like, he's going to come up and fall on his face. I was like, and sure enough, he'd always come up and catch his toe or do something silly, you know. And But, oh, my gosh, to breeze him and stuff the first times as a two-year-old and then to be on that whole journey with him, he was, like, a fun because he would always, like, trail in the back, you know, with the babies, and he just didn't kind of care about stuff. And then we put some blinkers on him after, I think he got a race in him. Got a race in him and put blinkers on him, and whoa, did it change him. He was like, he was like a different animal. He was just so beautiful. And uh, yeah, but it was just fun to have him change. And I have a cool story that I tell, and it's it's really fun because Colonial Fair was slow to develop, and he needed like lots of more breezes and a race, and then start over again and put his blinkers on and get him going again, you know. And it's kind of interesting now, Centennial Farms, even now, is known for you know, getting those horses to develop late that are big and go distant, long distances and stuff. So it's something they started a long time ago. Well, anyway, Richie, I was out of town when Colonial Affair was finally going to race in that race that we had just put blinkers on him for. Like he, we'd been working for a long time with him. And uh, Richie Migliori was free for the day. And I was like really specific about the way that he needed to be ridden now, because like now I'm well into his development and stuff. And so Richie was like one of the few jockeys that I could say, tell him all the things to do, you know, like pet him in the post parade and uh, pet him in the post parade and um, like get him like all these little, little tiny things I could tell Richie about his warm up. You told Richie Migliori. Oh my gosh. To pet him oh my in God. the post Richie parade. Richie was down to a <laughs> T. Richie like took such good care of my horse. Like he brought, oh, he rode him so beautiful and taught him so many things and it was really fun because I told him, I said, Richie, I said, uh, have your agent go by Scotty's barn. He wants to talk to him because you're going to break the maiden of the horse that's going to win the Belmont next year. And Richie was like, oh, I want to ride him next year, too. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, you're not. You're just going to break his maiden for me. So it's so funny when you see his racing form. It goes like Julie Crone, Julie Crone, Julie Crone, Richie Migliori, and Julie Crone. Julie Crone. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, Richie's. I can't wait to have Richie on the show talk about horsemanship and sensitivity to horses. Yeah, he's awesome. So I used to, you mentioned how Colonial Affair would spread his front legs wide to graze because he was such a big horse. And of course, you would know that that's what was required of him because every time I turned around at Monmouth, there you were on the side of the road grazing one of the horses that you were either about to go work or just worked or it's just like you you seem to get more joy out of morning workouts than anyone I've ever met. Oh, I love working it. You know, that's really, I'm really sad about the Monmouth Park thing, like the coronavirus closing the backside because the idea of my, my little feet walking on that beautiful hallowed ground again in the Monmouth Park is like, ah, like walking around with fair and, Peterson, because I'm going to be her agent this summer at Monmouth, and walking around there, yeah, walking around Monmouth with her was going to be like part of the, the spiritual adventure of going back to Monmouth Park. <laughs> but that being said, also too, I've been doing, it's funny, I've been doing lots of meditation to accept things as they are, because, you know, I was meditating for a while and after, and I was kind of feeling good about things. And I, the other day I said, Oh, this is why I was meditating all those years for moments like this, <laughs> where we have no control of our schedules. We can't make any plans. We have to ride by the seat of our pants, you know, kind of. And 
take things as they come and be like more easygoing and stuff. And um, I think that's going to be detrimental to everyone coming up who's going to be successful and stuff, you know, like being in the moment for what we're doing and being present and then also being able to not being able to control our futures and making schedules and stuff. It's important. I've had a meditation practice for years and I realize I'm starting to see the opportunity when things get challenging. Like, what do I need to be able to see here? Yeah, we weren't meditating to be like comfortable like we were before. We were waiting for this to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So you mentioned Farron and you had a big impact on a jockey I represented as her agent, and that was Laura Werner. Midge, yeah. you were her role model, her idol. I love that girl. And you really got her started. What did you see in her initially when it came to horsemanship? Just her pure, like, oh my gosh, like she could get off of a horse and say like, oh, he was like sore in his back leg. And then, you know, I jogged him two miles and he warmed up. So maybe it's like, a like she could describe like what the horse was thinking and being an advocate for them and stuff too, you know, like she's just such a good horseman and just just her cheery attitude and her personality was like, man, everything was better when Midge was around. <laughs> so it's like it made it a lot more fun. It did. I had so much fun with her. And we dreamed big. And this takes me back to something I saw in this ABC video. I watched Jim McKay interview you after the 93 Belmont Stakes when you made history. And he basically sort of tapped into the fact that you dreamt about this. You envisioned it when Steve Cawthon won the Belmont? It was kind of one of those things where I was just kind of thinking, I am living my dreams. This is insane. You know, my head, uh, just the fact that I felt like I really felt it in my soul. I felt that release of like being, how many people get to walk around in the world and be like, this is my dream and then live their dream. And then it was just as crazy it could ever be. Yeah, it's kind of like the same thing, too, because everybody was making it like, oh, you're a girl winning the Belmont. But, you know, as a human winning the Belmont is cool enough. You don't even have to <laughs> isolate it and genderize it. You know, we just, like, go for it. We just have one little person. It doesn't even matter. You know, that's the same kind of quality that Midge had. She had this ability to dream. And as a little girl, she painted her bedroom Godolphin Blue in England. And then she comes here with big dreams. No one pays any attention to her at Santa Anita, which has never been particularly girl-friendly. Mm -hmm. And she wins in the Godolphin Blue Silks for Owen Hardy. It was unbelievable. That's so beautiful. That is beautiful. That kid, that kid is so refreshing to be around. What a beautiful lease on life and the good things and the simple things and like just such a talented, dedicated athlete. She was just so fun to be around. I really miss her. I miss her too. And she won for Bob Baffert at Los Alamitos. Bob gave her a chance. And Bob always says to her, Midge, what kind of bone did I give to you? And she'll be like, Bob, one with absolutely no meat on it. <laughs> <laughs> it was this little filly that just barely had a chance to win, maybe. And she won by a whisker with Midge. Yeah, Midge would get her there. Midge is good. Oh, and then during the fires, how she stepped up and helped so many horses and people. And that was, she's just such a top-rate human being. Just a beautiful girl. Just amazing. I was with her when the fires broke out. And she says, I have to get down there. I have to see what I can do to help. And she was up all night at Del Mar. 
all night. She'd leave our house, man, and spend t- seven, t- seven to ten hours with that horse. Come back, stay for like three hours, eat, get a little bite to eat, take a shower, go right back and take care of her again. It was amazing. Just amazing. That's right, the filly that was burned. Mm-hmm. Midge spent oh my hundreds no. of hours nursing her back to health. Yeah, her qualities are reminiscent of what we, I think, used to see more of on the back stretches, and now that's people really looking out for each other. I felt like there was a very strong community on the back stretch when I first came around of of people reaching out and helping each other out, and I like to nurture that now when I have an opportunity. Yeah, have you seen the cool stuff that Belmont is doing? that Belmont did for like feeding people on the feeding yes. them and oh my God. And the, and the little program they have that for their backstretch employees, it's kind of neat, especially during the coronavirus. I think they were trying to reach out to, you know? So Julie, let's just get down to the nuts and bolts here. What is horsemanship to you? As I started to drift away uh, from being having my backyard pony or going to horse shows and stuff and then going to the racetrack. Uh, it was kind of like, you know, it was the toughness. And I think because I got to do a lot of liberty and stuff, trick like circus tricks with horses and stuff where you, where you have to like pull a horse's head and then tap their shoulder at the right timing. And then they like push their leg out and like do like a strike, almost like Zenyatta's um, cir- like circus walk she used to do with her one leg, you know? And it had all to do with timing. And, like, I would teach these horses, like, how to do, like, circus tricks and different things like that. And it was crazy because I think my horsemanship was so good because I learned, like, kind of like a cause and effect and, like, how important release is for a horse. Like, because sometimes you can ask a horse to do something. And if you don't release the pressure of the you're asking them, then they're not going to interpret what you wanted them to do, and they're going to become more confused. So I guess people understanding horsemanship to me is like timing, observation, uh, never, ever, ever saying that you're finished, like that you know what you're doing kind of like, because we learn every day so much every day. Uh, and the the idea that uh, it's funny too, because like you can get, you, you, the first thing that happens when you're a jockey is you get pegged for, like, they, they label you, like, oh, she's so good at riding distance races. She's so good at winning on the turf. She's so good at teaching babies how to win, you know? So I guess horsemanship to me would be being able to check the box off of each category. Like, you know, are you good at riding horses on the turf? Yes, I am. What makes you good at that? Oh, I can let a horse relax. I can slide my reins back and let them use their whole bodies like to stride across the turf course and get the most relaxed stride so they can save their oxygen and their muscle power for the end. Or I can be, you know, I can hold my reins really short and use my, use my legs, all, like lower my stirrups a little and guide a baby in the post parade and teach it how to go with the pony. And so like horsemanship is going to be how well-rounded you are and how you adjust to all the horses in your life. Like the nervous little jiggy, jiggy, prancy filly that sprints, you know, the big, the big bossy, like kind of like has his own ideas stallion that like, you know, runs a mile and an eighth that needs you to help him pay attention. Like, so horsemanship to me would be the ability to adjust and alter your, your, 
your behavior, like, so you can make every single horse across the category happy. Like you're, you're not one, you're not one way, you know, like you can, you can teach and, and learn and just constantly stay developing yourself. And the thoroughbred is so unique because they're so rewarding because you can have a thoroughbred do something naughty and then you can do it right with them like two times and they'll be like, Oh, I got it now. They're so fun to ride. and so, so amazing to communicate with. But so, yeah, that would be my description of like the perfect horsemanship thing is where you're capable and able to adjust to all the different styles and the requirements that all the horses have. So you can be the one that gets along with them better than anyone else. You mentioned gentle or release rather, and gentleness is clearly part of it on some level, but is firmness part of horsemanship as well? Yes. And that's interesting too, because I really liked uh, the fact that the Pirelli, the, I, I bring up the Pirelli thing because I think the Pirelli program is unique to the way that you can be more specific with a question. You can say, we're like, what do I do with a, a horse that's trying to bite me? Or what do I do with a horse that's, you know, like I pull on the left rein and they go out that way or whatever. So, but um, yeah, being assertive with a horse is, it's, in, it's cool because once you realize that horses are so capable, we don't give them enough credit for it. Like they get, they can do like really intense things. Like obviously we see by the, that guy, that Italian guy that rides like 12 horses at Liberty and they all do the exact same thing and the exact same stride. Like, come on, you're going to tell me you can't steer a thoroughbred around with reins. You know, this guy's got 12 horses that are like doing the same exact things in perfect synchronicity with their footfall, not even an inch from each other, you know, and, and, and you have to ride a horse uh, next to another horse and raid it and keep back. And you're going to tell me you can't do that even with reins. Like, come on, raise your, raise your game up a little bit, but yes, but here's the thing to being assertive with a horse. So let's say you have a requirement of a horse and you'd like them to go forward, right? Your first level of communication might be in four steps, like you're pulling on their halter or we'll just for, for grace of like, just having a streamline of this, we'll just say halter and lead rope. So to be assertive with a horse and be firm and be in control of the horse would be, it would go something like this. It would go like you're pulling on their halter, which already indicates I'd like you to come forward, right? So if the horse has an an objective reaction to this, which would be like to actually maybe even go the other way, you know, you would maintain what you were doing and then you would reinforce it with some type of, uh, some type of stick or a piece of leather or something that the horse has been traditionally used to strike the horse and then the horse moves from the energy from being hit hit or struck by the thing right no matter even if it's a tap or tapped so you're pulling on the halter you could cluck or something you could go like this and then smack and then you hit the horse's tushy or their shoulder or whatever you want them to do that moves them away now let's say a traditional horse with normal development is gonna pop away from the emotion pop away from the motion of feeling the pressure on their body wherever they felt it, right? Then they then they look at you and they expect a reaction and you say, oh, that was really good, horse. Thank you for moving away from my pressure. However, it took me to the point of pulling, clucking, and striking, right? So now the next time I pull the horse, the horse moves a little tiny bit but still doesn't really respond and I have to cluck like this. And as I raise my little, like, whatever my little stick is or whatever my my whip and I hit the horse the horse is already gone from underneath my 
where my whip would have struck it. Hence, reinforcing or acknowledging the fact that a horse learns in steps and by habit. So now, by the time this is over, I no longer have to be assertive and strong because I just taught the horse in phases. I pull your halter, I cluck, you move forward. It gets down to the phase where no longer is the phase of reinforcement or strength needed because my timing and my request was so well read by the horse that the horse, after a while, seems to magically go forward just with my focus or my wish. And now my next stage has been eliminated where I no longer need to be assertive with some type of other reinforcement, like with a stick or something. So yes, you do have to be assertive with the horse, but you also have to be capable of reading their ability to learn things in phases and reward them so you will no longer ever need the reinforcement of force, we'll say, or motion to request the horse to do something which can seem like it's an invisible aid once you do it the right way and develop a relationship with your horse. So that said, how important was it to you during your career as a jockey to work horses in the morning along the way as they develop toward their races? So, so important. I would get so crazy intense with teaching a horse something. Horses are, they can learn anything. They can learn anything at the instantly. Like, and you can do some things habitual with them and they enjoy it. And some horses enjoy it way more than others. So there is a group of horses that are really not that fond of having changes, you know, and you kind of have to be careful when you change things with them. But there's others that thrive on it. Like, oh, my God, if you do the same every day with some horses, you're going to drive them bonkers. But other horses like to do different things. So, yes, I loved working my horses in the morning. I loved develop my relationships. And I would even develop a relationship with a horse in the post parade. I had this horse one time, and I was feeling especially uh, sassy, and kind of like, uh, I think I was the leading rider at Gulfstream maybe the second year. And I just felt like, oh my gosh, there was nothing I couldn't do with a horse, with, with a racehorse. Out on the track, in the 10 minutes that it took, you know, in the post parade and stuff, it was just like my, I would go into these places, these zones that were like crazy. So I was on this horse and the horse was known to be really lazy. So what I did was the guy, the trainer was like, okay, you're going to have to really whip him a lot to get him to win, you know, and I'd been riding the horse in the morning, and this horse was a fool. This horse had so much fun and had a play drive. I, I've probably only 10, 10 horses in my life had play drive this strong. So I followed him back one day from watching him do a workout, and he was prancing on the track at Gulfstream, and he was biting he was biting the boot of the jockey, trying to breeze him, and he was aggravating the jockey, and he was just like, oh, my God, he was bucking, and he was having so much fun. He was a riot. So I followed him back to the barn, and I looked at his racing form, and he was kind of, kind of in the middle of the pack. He had, he had three maiden races. He didn't break his maiden. Obscure trainer, only had one horse. I, and I came back. I'm leading rider. You have to imagine. Here's this guy with one horse. And I said, I want to ride this horse so bad. And the guy's like, What? I said, this horse has so many characteristics that I love in horses. He goes, ah, you don't want to ride him, Julie. He's, he's you know, not when. I said, please let me ride him. I said, I will make your jockey mad. And he goes, no, I've had two different riders. Nobody's really. I said, I want to ride him so bad. Breezed him, got a pair of blinkers on him with big, gigantic holes, just kind of like to, it was more like a, it was more like he was dressing up to do something. So it would kind of like, you know, put another notch in his mind that he was working, <laughs> working. So he had such a, so much play drive uh, that I take it, I would take him away from the pony and I would go like, and then I'd smack him with the whip, right? 
And as he jumped off, he would jump off to go into a canter. I would scratch his neck. And it was the craziest thing because you'll see dogs learning. And dogs and horses are not the same. So they do not learn the same. One is a predator. One is a prey animal. But this specific case, this horse's play drive was so strong that his reward was me playing with him. Right? So now I go and I smack him and he goes down real low and he digs really fast and takes off in a fast sprint. Like this is in the post parade. You know, and I'm pulling with my muscles to stop him because now I'm like, whoa, whoa, don't go. And then I scratch his neck and play with him and his head swirls all around and he slaps the ground and he kind of is like, you know, almost even squealing, playing and stuff, you know. And I do this about 10 times in the post parade. And oh my gosh, by the third time I like go like this, he shoots off like a rocket. He was so, he was so tuned in and he, and he just was so excited to learn something and be rewarded by, by just petting him on his neck and like telling him, good boy, you know. Gates open up. I sit perfectly still on him. I don't move. I don't move. And then I surprise him with this giant, ah, you know, and like chirp, never touch him with my stick and just have this beautiful, strong hand ride all the way down the stretch. Well, just this trainer, his mind was blown. He just thought that was the craziest thing he'd ever seen, you know, that I could ride that horse like that. And he watched me with binoculars in the post parade. He watched me teach him how to move forward from the stick in my voice. And being assertive and strong, you know, and like showing him who's boss. And, and so that was kind of a fun, fun thing for me to look back on. And there's a few rides that I have, and some of them aren't like champion rides, like where horses won like a graded race. But that was one of those rides where I planned it from the first time I ever saw him on the backside at, at Gulfstream Park walking and giving people a hard time that I knew that horse had that win in him, you know. I could see it. So that was kind of like... I don't even know if I answered your question. <laughs> I think you did. Yes, you can be firm with these horses and gentle, and you, both are required. Exactly. But you know what I love about that is you help that particular horse achieve his best. Yeah. What does that mean to you? It would meant a lot, obviously, if it still gets me all pumped up, like, you know, 25 years later or whatever. And also there's another horse that there was another race at Gulfstream and Alan Jerkins and I was, were talking early in the morning, and I was riding this little horse for one of the good Calder guys. I forgot who the horse was for, but he, he, could, he could win. He was like five, five to one, and then with me riding him, he was, he was one of the favorites. But it was really cool because it, it was a unique race at Gulfstream Park. It was, uh, they were breaking right in front of the gate. Was that like their mile and an eighth race that they had at Gulfstream? Anyway, so I had the 12 hole, and this horse... He liked to come from like the middle of the pack a little bit, but he was also like really fast out of there. And I always had to kind of like be like, no, 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 come back. It's okay, right? And I told Alan Jerkins, I said, Alan, I said, I'm going to do something crazy tonight in the last race at Gulfstream. I said, uh, I'm going to break that horse out of the 12 hole. I'm going to, there was no speed in the race. It was the craziest thing. He was like literally even from a middle of the road kind of a horse. He'd been in front like maybe twice, like not one horse had been in front in their whole life in the whole form. It was crazy. 12 horses. I said, I'm going to break him out of there. I'm going to cross over on everybody and I'm going to go under the rail and then I'm going to let like about six horses pass me. And then I'm going to maintain that position right there. I was instead of like breaking and do the traditional thing where you just like try to go over with everybody. Right. So I came out of there, man, heels and elbows, pushing on him, Carolyn, got him to the lead, dropped over. And people were like, like nobody was riding because the race is really long and everybody came out like with their with their jockey butts up and like with their reins long. And I was like, boom, get to my position, go over. 
reached up and grabbed him. He was so easy to ride. He was so lovely. He came right back to me. The horses went past him. I ended up like sixth or seventh. And then I just like tip him out in the stretch and come running and he wins. And sharing that with Alan Jerkins that night and having Alan Jer- And it was like, oh my gosh, like I think it was the bottom of the rung claimers or something too, you know, it wasn't even like, but that, that whole planning and, and the, like making the race work. So like the horse had the best chance in the, in the, it was just really cool. And I, I kind of remember that race too. And then sharing it with Alan Jerkins, it was so fun. Cause he was such a fun guy to watch the races with and be around. Cause he was a, the best bench rider, you know, like he, he could sit in the, in the trainer's thing or in his office and you could watch races with him and he would have the funnest comments to say about picking on jockeys or, you know, building up some horse that had like a really good fourth that was like 30 to one or something, you know. It's like just really, he's really a fun guy to share that stuff with. And to see his face and to see him giggle and be like, that was something, that was so cool. That was fun that you planned that and that horse did everything. And like to hear him react and like how fun it was. It definitely added a whole nother dimension to like winning a race. It was like really cool. You mentioned Alan Jerkins. Who were your biggest influences in your race riding and your horsemanship, Julie? Julie Snellings was one of the first people. She saw me ride at Tampa Bay Downs and she was like, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the story how she was, she would tell me stuff to do all the time and people in the jockey's room would say, hey, there's a girl in the racing office and and she wants to talk. She wants to talk to you about your race you rode yesterday. And I'd be like, okay. So I would call her on the phone. She'd be like, hey, this is this is Julie, Julie. <laughs> um, and I was like, yeah. And she's like, uh, oh, you when you go around the turn, don't don't go wide like that. Wait until the turn comes and then like tip out a little, you know. And I was like, okay. So she was telling me how to ride a lot, and I was like, wasn't that thrilled with it? I honestly have to tell you, because <laughs> you know I was just starting out and. I don't know. It was just kind of a strange thing that somebody was calling me all the time. And, and But she never told me I did anything good. She would just always pick on me all the time. So uh, I needed a little more positive reinforcement. <laughs> so she was like, so finally one day I was at the at the backside and somebody's like, oh, go see Julie Snellings. And I was like, okay. So I go to the office and she starts picking on my riding again. Like she's like, oh, you should, when you whip, don't do that because you look bad and like, you know, do this. And, and I was kind of like, oh, if you're such a good rider, then why aren't you out there? And she rolled back in her wheelchair. And I was like, ah! I was like, oh, no. yeah, you want to feel bad about something? I was like, yeah, okay then. So that let's start this relationship over. <laughs> so her, her, what she did for my career, what she did, like she literally called Chick Lang Jr. and Sr. both and said, you guys, this girl jockey is so good. You guys have to, Chicky, you should take her book. And like, you should help her, you know, because they were all kind of in the same tribe. And Chicky's like, I'll take her book for you. So I packed up my boxes as my luggage and got flown to Maryland, Timonium, Maryland. And when I got out of the plane at Timonium, I was like, oh, look at that big city. The lights from Timonium. When you go up, the Langs lived up on this hill. uh, And and Kenny Black lived with them. And now I was going to live with them. And and it was like a little jockey. Like Chick had, they had, the Langs had three kids. And uh, two jockeys living in their house. It was kind of fun. We played games at night and everything. It was a really cool thing. Then after I spent some time with Chick and Julie and Kenny Black, Kenny really helped my racing, my riding a lot. Because I would get to go home to Lang's house at night and Kenny would talk about the races, you know, like, or we'd watch a race and he'd go, look how I'm following these 
this bunch right here, these horses, I know they're live, you know, and he'd explain like the racing form and why you sit behind these horses and follow them. And so maybe more like Julie and Kenny in the beginning. And then Bud Delp's son was watching me ride and he's like, my dad wants you to ride for him, but I need to be your agent. So when I told Chick Lang that, he was so excited. They were like, oh yeah, we're happy you have a trainer that wants to ride you. And then Bud Delp was the first trainer that put me on a lot of horses and gave me a chance to ride. So, and gave me a place to go every morning too, you know. Um, but I really worked hard and I saw him every single day that Pimlico meet and I'd walk in in the barn every morning. And it was so funny. He gave me shed rowers and it was the funniest thing. I'd never even flinch. I'd say, oh, sure, I'd love to shed a roll a horse for you. <laughs> and I'd shed row horses for him at Pimlico. And, and then Delaware comes and now I'm riding the apprentice horses. So it just goes to show you. That when you, you know, when you get, when you're going to work, you go to work and you do whatever somebody asks you to do, kind of like, and you never know where mo- sure. moments like that will take you, you know, like, and I even walked hots for him a couple of times. Like he'd be like, oh yeah, here, walk, give this one a turn. And I'd say, yes, sir, Mr. Delp, my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Were you put off or do you just love horses so much that? No, I never was. You know, it was funny when I was growing up, my mom always used to say to never be, uh, uh, an equestrian discipline snob. So like when I grew up, we, we had buggy horses, trail horses. Uh, we had Shetland ponies, Arabians. We did jumping. We did trail class. We did showmanship. You know, we supported, oh my gosh, I had a speed pony that I used to do the speed classes with. Like, you know, like I had one pony that I would do pleasure stuff with and one pony that I would do like barrels and keg bending with and stuff like that. We were never a snob of any disciplines. And I think by introducing your brain to being open to like many different ways to do things with horses and many different ways of communicating with people that I was by nature never bothered by any of that stuff, you know? Like, uh, yeah, like I, I embraced it. If it had, yeah, if it had four legs and a tail and a mane and oh my goodness, yeah, <laughs> we love them all. And what about your daughter, Lorelai? Does she ride horses with you? Well, she was not that into horse, horses and racing, but she really likes theater. So that was the coolest thing that uh, one day we're riding down the trail and we're by the beach and the ocean breeze is blowing on us. And she was kind of like crying, you know, and she was like maybe about six, five or six. And I was like, and she's riding her little pony. And I'm like, Lorelai, what's wrong? And she's like, Mom, I got to tell you something. I don't think you're going to be very happy. And I was kind of like, what? And she goes, I don't like horses like you do. I want to do theater and play music and stuff. I don't want to ride every day. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> but so it took me, it took me like about a week to get over it, you know, and I'm kind of like, and she's like, mom, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I needed some time, but I'm okay. Uh, so my horses, I sent my horses to this really wonderful place in Greenwich, New York. It's up above Saratoga. So it's called Long Shadows Foundation. And they, they have a whole bunch of different clinics and help local kids in the area. And they have a riding program they do with this amazing, amazing girl named Tabitha Morgan. She's a horseman that runs the barn there. She's in charge of Long Shadows Foundation. And uh, my horses went there to be used for the foundation and with Tabitha and stuff. And then uh, Lolo tried out and did some plays. Uh, first play she did was The Sound of Music. And uh, I think all the doubt left her mind when she stepped out and there's a scene where the, the, the captain is in, introducing them to their, their new caretaker. And um, 
she Gretel steps out and all oh, the children say their name and Gretel steps out and Lolo the scene of her stepping out and saying Gretel in the crowd you know of the whole packed theater and Lolo steps out and says Gretel and the crowd goes ah and Lolo goes hoo hoo this is where I belong <laughs> I can see her I can see her light bulb go on like yep this is me yeah and since then she's had a, some good main roles too she's been young Fiona and Ariel and then she just got the Beauty and the Beast, she was Belle, but that got coronavirus canceled, which was really sad. Uh, yeah, but we've done plays constantly for seven years without stopping, basically. <laughs> and you've been fully immersed. You make these incredible costumes. Yeah, that's a crazy. It happened by accident. Uh, I'd been painting a little bit at home, like just having fun and painting and dabbling in some artwork. And my dad was an art teacher an art teacher and a photographer. So there was always paper and pencil and art technique at my house. And my dad was always drawing and painting something. And so I was at the theater and the director was really sad. And he was like, oh my goodness, I'm so sad. My whole wall, it's supposed to be a stone wall for a castle and it's all this greenery. And I was like, well, I could paint that. And he was like, no way. And I was like, yeah. And so I went and got like three spray cans of paint and some personal protective equipment and, uh, Went to it and literally, not even an hour later, I had it completely done. And then there started my whole career with me doing stages, stage stuff. And it was just really fun. And so it started, I made props and painted the stages. And then, then I made costumes. And I think that's the kind of thing I like to do. I really like making the costumes. It was, it was really, really fun. Oh, yeah. So how do you stay busy right now? Well, I love physical fitness. I live in Southern California. I have a 15-year-old child. Oh my gosh, I could just go down the list. Pickleball, artwork, organizing. I have been thriving during this coronavirus lockdown, by the way. Thriving. Both Lorelai, Lorelai and I both have. So I missed the theater, and that was just ripped my heart, bits of my heart out that I can never get over. Like, like getting disqualified in the Louisiana Derby. You know, like you'll never get over that. So, but at the same time, I do my meditation is rich. I do a lot of meditation where I'm, I feel like I'm, I can suffer. I don't mind being miserable a little bit, you know, and sometimes stay in there because that's sometimes just how life is. And as humans, we're going to suffer and have things that are sucky. And so I just spend a little time with it and try to find a place that it belongs. And then I just try to reattach to the, the literal viable living, breathing person that I am right now, walking around, like making my own choices and interpreting things like I want to interpret them today like and then sharing that with Lorelai you know helping her to negotiate as a person that maybe is going to develop that side of her in a coronavirus era let's say where she can have the ability to be in touch with something that makes her sad but also letting her know that we never we never have any control of anything and it's just a terrible you know sh uh prestidigitation that we think we do, you know, like we're doing magic and thinking we have control of things, but we don't. So helping a little human come into the world, not little, she's taller than me now, but whatever. <laughs> helping her be able to negotiate. That's not saying much, Judy. Yeah. <laughs> helping her be able to negotiate <laughs> the coronavirus times and be good with not being able to control the outcome, but at the same time, obligating and taking control of our own fitness and our health and how we're going to spend the next couple of days and making the small little plans that we can, like, I'm going to go to Monmouth Park this summer and I'm going to intend on being a jockey's agent. And it might not be the traditional one where I was pounding the pavement, walking at Monmouth Park, you know, 
And, oh, what a joy that would have been. Well, it's still not over. We might still get to go to the backside and stuff and see the horses, but I'll take it for what it is. Um, but that would have been really fun to walk around at Monmouth and spend time there. And, oh, my gosh, I'd have been thinking of times that we had there. Our first trip to Saratoga. Oh, my, oh my God, we had so I much know. fun. I know. And I lost my diamond bracelet ah, on the way. <laughs> see? See? We looked you'll let, we you'll, you'll get over that when you're getting over that. But it doesn't ruin your life on a daily basis. <laughs> exactly. You know, the walking around the backstretch is the best part of being an agent, I thought. And it, I, my heart goes out to these agents right now that have to sit at home and do all their work on the phone. That takes yeah. the joy out of it for me. Yeah. And to see Farron on horses, like, because she's worked for, Farron worked for six months, like, building her muscles and dieting and, and like, developing other, you know, like, we watched videos of racing together and talked about, like, different, you know, different ways races develop and reading the racing form. And, I mean, we're still not finished. We're still developing. But we were, we were really busy for six months, and she worked way harder than I worked, like, because, you know, it's, it's a 70-30 kind of thing, you know, it's all on her, and uh, she's, like, she, she is so talented and so driven, what a, she's, she lifts me up and gives me drive and strength, and, like, I used to have people say that to me, like, they'd be like, you're always smiling, you're so inspirational, you get me going, you know, and I was just like, ah, you, you just get out there and do it, and now to be around someone like Farron who has even more than I had is just like such a rewarding situation and just such a, I'm looking forward to being her agent so much and to representing her because of all the things she, she is, you know, and all the things she brings to the game, her horsemanship, her dedication, her, uh, oh, she's just the most refreshing, convivial person. Yeah. And she graduated from vet school. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How about that? (laughs) She's a DVM jock. Unbelievable. Acupuncturist. And she's a licensed acupuncturist, too. That would come in handy, especially right now. (laughs) For horses, though. Oh, (laughs) shoot. Because Farron is always about horses, Carolyn. (laughs) I meet more and more people every day, especially since I've started this podcast, that really put the horses first. I've known this on some level, but it's just become more apparent. And it just makes my heart sing because I love thoroughbred racing so much. And when there, you just find more and more people out there doing it right, caring about the horses, wanting to bring out the best in them. It's, uh, it's good news. Yes, it is. So Julie, your legacy, this will be kind of our final question. Clearly you're helping riders like you help Midge, Laura Werner, um, Farron, and you also had a junior jockey camp. Oh, my jockey camp. Tell me quickly about that. Yes. I'm so sad. That's another thing that's jerking. You know, my heart has been crushed, jerked out, and slammed onto the ground. Ah, just terrible pain that was to lose that jockey camp. I can't say enough things about Frankie Lovato Jr. This guy, like, first of all, not only that he makes the equisizers, right? Like, those beautiful horses that he makes. um, But the fact that he completely developed that jockey camp for years, him and his wife, Sandy Lovato. Frankie developed, he had this pro, he had this notebook for me, gave me the whole entire notebook, Carolyn, for the whole schedule, like what first day this, second day that, and I tweaked it and messed around with it and stuff because he always runs the program without horses. And Tabitha Morgan at Long Shadow got the horses all set up for us. 
So we got to use the horses, so we had to incorporate some stuff into there. But oh, what a joy it was to do that program and to be to be with those kids and watch them and the love for the sport. And I had this fun thing where I went and I, we went to the backside of Saratoga and got jockey silks. I mean, got jo- got all the setup for the morning workout. So like my one little girl, Catherine, she was on this big thoroughbred. We have Cannon that was from uh, Neil, Neil Drysdale, big 16 hand. Oh my God. He's gorgeous. And he's decked out in all Billy Mott riding tack. And it looks like she, he's like, she's galloping this racehorse for Billy Mott at Saratoga. It was the cutest visuals, you know. And Linda Rice had a horse. So we're, we're all in the arena and everybody's like cantering the horses around. And they're looking like jockey style and stuff. And to share all these things about horses and to watch this whole next generation come in. And, and to have Frankie, Frankie was so this whole thing could have never been done without him. He shared his whole program with me, just like handed me everything, his learning, his teaching book. He brought his equisizers. He brought three equisizers and we had like jockey races. And those, those equisizers are just priceless what they add to the ability to share like with technique, you know, and we're like, like, cause it, you could do a lot at jockey camp, but when you have the equisizers, it just takes it to a whole new level. And it was really amazing. And, that was one of the most fun things I have done in a really long time. And I was really looking forward to it. So we'll have to get Jockey Camp back up next year. And it was really fun because everyone in racing was like so, and I mean everybody. I'm talking racetracks, uh, owners, like people donated to sponsor my jockeys because it was all, you know, the ki- it was kids from the area that might not go to camp and stuff. They were all like kind of kids that would not, might not have the opportunity to be around horses and learn stuff. And the one girl actually ended up going to Saratoga afterward and got a job walking hots and ponying horses Good for her. right after. Good job, Julie. Thank you. It went straight to work. It did it right what it was supposed to do. Ah, uh, that's awesome. I love it. And Julie, as you develop a young rider in Farron, what is the most important aspect of your experience, your horsemanship that you can pass on to her? I got to tell you, this is going to be so boring of an answer. I, she's a perfect package. There's nothing I can do for her. Like, she is perfect the way she is. You know, the hardest part of being an athlete is that mental recovery. So maybe managing her in a in a coach kind of a way, you know? Like, because I, I don't have to inspire her to work. She's as hardworking as me and, and is direct. Like, and she's driven. Like I said, she inspires me. Like, so that's crazy. I, I don't have to, like explain to her anything about racing. She's already been in the racing game, rode over 200 races. Like she knows what's coming. You know, it's like, she's, she's a, the most ready seven pound bug that there's going to be ever in the history of racing from here. Now it's just getting ready to enjoy it and be part of the racing game. Well, good luck this summer at Monmouth. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Julie. I am thrilled to have you on racehorses, et cetera. And it was thrilling to be on racehorses, et cetera. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Racehorses, Etc. Please go to carolynconley.com and become a Racehorses Insider. We'll keep you up to date with exclusive content and more. That's it for now. Remember, until we meet again, enjoy the horses.